What do we need it for? Oh, I hit a button. I actually like when I hit Byron buttons. (laughs) We need it for what? If you are not getting educated about local and national market conditions in real estate, whether you're in title, insurance, mortgage, financial advising, or obviously a real estate agent, you're doing yourself and your client base a disservice. This is the Knowledge Brokers Podcast. I'm Tom Tool, and Byron Lazine and Lisa Chinati have graced us with their presence again. And kind of a slow week, although our friend, who we're going to get on the show, I've been working on this for a while, Logan Motoshami from Housing Wire, had an article that dropped yesterday, which I tend to agree with, that the savagely unhealthy housing market is back. So what does that even mean? And one of the critical data lines that he tracks is days on market. And when that breaks under 30, Logan believes it's a dangerous sign. And then when we get into the teens or lower, it's red alert. So what do you two think about this? Are you seeing it in your marketplaces? Are we back to a savagely unhealthy housing inventory as of June 2023? And is this the way you want to explain that? that terminology that Logan uses to consumers, if you're advising consumers. I don't think you want to use the word savagely unhealthy, Lisa, do you? Nope. I don't think that that one comes into play. Agreed. So what's your takeaway first? Since you let me go first last week, Lisa, I'm going to let you go first this week. I appreciate that. Um, It's unusual for you to be so kind. But Mm. um, so I actually I kind of agree. I think, you know, one of the things that we've been talking about and kind of looking at is what are days on market? How competitive is it? And again, I think one part is understanding how does your local market enter? How does that compare to the national market? Right. Locally, we are a very unbalanced uh, market, very tipped towards the seller side. It was fascinating, not kind of totally related, but I was looking at, I was pulling some stats for a project that I was working on and comparing some of our biggest markets and sales from last year with where year to date units were and kind of expecting that, you know, at this point we would be at about, what do we always expect? Like 40% of our sales are done so far year to date in some of these big markets. And looking at it, we were at 25 to 30% on the high end in most of our markets. Days on market is in some of these markets, single digits. So I know uh, in the news article, they were talking about that really red zone for that unhealthy market being when we got to double digits, teenage numbers, right? Like stuff in the teens, but we're actually in some of our markets seeing less than a week again, which is, bananas to think about. Prices still increasing, mortgage rates holding steady, but the demand is still insane. It's not balanced. It's not, um, it it doesn't, doesn't align. When you say the demand is insane though, Lisa, I don't, I don't agree that it's insane. I think it's insane for the level of inventory we have. Is that what you mean by that? Yeah, totally. I, yeah. I mean, is it the same, the interesting thing, and I think one of the things that we don't talk about enough is Demand is high, but in the competitive nature of the market is this similar to what we saw in 2021 and early parts of 2022, but it's similar in the frenzy, not similar in the volume of demand, right? There are definitely yeah. fewer buyers in the market, but the ratio, maybe that's the best word to describe it, the ratio of buyers to listings is 
maybe about the same or maybe more buyers per listing than we were seeing in 21 and 22. And the ratio to buyers to affordable listings is completely outweighed. And and it, that's that's yeah. the struggle in this market is that, you know, NAR just reported for May that 28% of buyers in May were first-time home buyers. Well, they're co competing with the largest buyer demographic of baby boomers. They're all competing mm -hmm. for the same the same type of home this you know this this affordable housing option uh or the starter home housing option and there's just not enough of that i was in the cigar lounge here in uh connecticut the other day and i'm doing some email and there's a there's a guy he used to work ibm for years um the business guy and and he's doing some some work on his laptop and we start talking he starts talking about the real estate market uh with me and he says, hey, what do you think about, you know, the Connecticut government just passed this uh, earlier in the year, you know, it's a big benefit for uh, first time home buyers, right? To incentivize people at a certain income level to, um, you know, basically save some money off of their uh, first time home buyer. He's a big supporter of, of big government. So uh, I said, listen, I, I think it's not going to work. Just like all of these uh, incentives across the country to incentivize the first time home buyer. It's great for votes and great for people like you who are half paying attention to think that your government's doing something really special for the people out there. They're, they continue to stimulate the bottom where that buyer, that first time home buyer who might save a few thousand bucks on closing costs, even if it's 10,000, doesn't matter because they're not winning the house. When you're going up against 10 or 15 offers, you're not winning the house on one of those special, you know, loan arrangements or, you know, they're taking the cash, they're taking the offer that can drop its inspections, and they're moving forward. So until we start to stimulate the top and create an abundance of inventory at an affordable level, you're not going to solve the savagely unhealthy market that Logan Motoshami has coined here the last 18 months. So that's a really great point, Byron, because we, we saw something anecdotally here where there was a, a very large farm that got sold literally down the street from my office. It was about 300 acres. M. Night Shyamalan buys it, right? He takes 90 acres and instead of selling it to a developer, he sold it to a conservation trust that's adjacent. And this would have been a, a perfect opportunity to build a townhome community, right? put a lot of housing in there, maybe even some smaller single family homes. But when this stuff continues to happen, and we've talked about the zoning requirements before that are jamming people up and, and you know, we were our office is in a little bit of a more rural location. There's no, there's no incentive for him to flip that to a builder. There's no incentive for him to maybe build something that would make sense for the community and bring more tax revenue in long term. So he said, Hey, you know what, I'm selling it to the conservation trust. And when that stuff continues to happen, I'm sure you're seeing that in Massachusetts, Lisa, and New Hampshire. I'm sure you're seeing that in Connecticut. Of course. It, it happens all the time. And you know what would have been really great? How about, and, and this, like, Lisa, you've been to my office. There's not a, lot, a whole lot of commercial space around there, right? You know what people probably would have really liked? A maybe mixed-use facility with a couple restaurants in there that doesn't affect the neighboring homes at all, but it's a place to go. And it stimulates people wanting to move there and people buying whether and and that's the thing there there's no there's no incentive for him to do that so he said hey i'm going to take the tax right off of selling it to the conservation trust versus let's do some development here and that's the whole reason this was purchased now he may have different reasoning behind it but that's one example of something that happens constantly over and over and over again 
there's no incentive there it happens all the time in connecticut and i I saw an argument recently where it's like hey there's still plenty of land in in connecticut but you don't i mean there's a lot of it that's that's been sold to uh, you know conservative um you know so where you can't develop it the i'm sorry conservations uh where you can't develop it the the number i just saw the the other day for connecticut was uh they're only adding 2000 units a year for new construction i mean that's that, crazy that wow. basically only replaces stuff that's falling down you got i mean the town that i'm sitting in right now if i go down to the town green you're going to drive by you know 30 40 50 60 homes that were built in 1700 i mean that's like uh you know when christopher columbus came over right when did he come over 1492 pal. 1492 well i mean it's 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 pretty close in my eyes 1492 christopher you know, columbus sailed the ocean come on people were riding horses when these houses were built it's it's insane you know so 2000 units is not enough well, and that's what contributes to this, right? I mean, we're seeing days on market come down. We talked about the average price of new construction. I mean, it, it, in our market, it's between eight fifty and one point two million in the suburban counties outside Philadelphia. That's the average of, of new construction that's available. And when we're seeing, we saw seven hundred ninety-seven homes come to the market this past week with new, coming soon, and back to active properties in in the in the three county area in the city of Philadelphia. We've seen days on market. Now we're at 17 to 18 days in the suburbs, down from 25 to 26. It may not sound like a lot when it's only a week, but you're talking about almost a third decline in, in how fast homes are selling. Now, now the other point of this, though, and you guys mentioned there's more buyer per house. We've seen month supply of inventory increase, and, and that's a big deal because the homes are taking it's still there's more out there than there was this time last year, even though there's less homes selling. We went from a 2.7 month supply of inventory in our marketplace this year compared to two months even last year through the month of may so savagely unhealthy if you're a real estate agent just do yourself a favor that's like saying there's no inventory or the market's crazy just remove that language from your vocabulary or you're going to scare off a lot of people but know what the supply is know what the month supply of inventory is because that it paints a different picture uh because there it's it's a numbers game a little bit so i'm not saying there's a ton of inventory there's just maybe a little more to choose from because there's less buyers, but there's inventory is still historically low. And it's it's kind of like when rates were at five and people were like, oh, they're so high. Well, historically, that's very low. So you have to look at this unicorn 2020 to 2022 market as an outlier. And that's language I would be using if I was a knowledge broker is, hey, the last two years were an outlier. Here's what normally happens. Let's go back in the time machine and jump in the DeLorean to 2018, 2019. And talk about numbers that matter, like month inventory of supply, because that's going to help buyers at least understand what's going on. And you're not talking in jargon, you're giving them real information that shows, look, it's, it's still tough, don't get me wrong. And, and you have to kind of empathize with them as well. But knowing that data is going to make it make a huge difference. Logan said in his piece, and I tend to agree with him, not much can be done here. Uh, mortgage rates are near 7%. And as long as they sit around the 7% level, we're going to be dealing with this because people aren't selling. So um, you know, we need to see an, uh, a 30 year fix get to six or under mortgage banker association reported this week that they believe they'll, that will end the year at 5.8. That's a really good sign for 2024. You know, if they on, get there, if I, they get there, I'm, I'm not, I'm not convinced that they yeah. will either, but I'm just coin saying flip. coin flip at best. I agree. If, if we go into 2024 in the high fives, 
you're you're going to have a significantly better 2024 real estate market when it comes to health than you do in 2023. I'm not convinced either, Lisa, but yeah, I'm at least looking for some positive tea leaves here. You know, I'm and flip your little um, you know, well, let's see what do you got there? Your little time capsule there. It's called an hourglass. I mean, by the time that sand gets in here, we might be at eight eight percent on the thirty year fix. I get it. The signs are are not great, but by the way, eight percent would be catastrophic for this market because we've got enough data on what seven percent looks like. We have enough data on seven percent, eight percent. The people that say, "Well, there used to be twelve percent interest rates," it would completely crush the activity in this market. Zillow reports that if we get to eight percent on the 30 year fix, we'll go from 4.3 million seasonally adjusted uh, existing home sales down to 3.3 million. We lose a million like that. You get anywhere close to double digits, you're not gonna see anything happen. That's all I'll say to that. So I'm rooting for Mortgage Banker Association to be right. Get under 6 million here, or get under 6%. I don't think it does this year. I don't think we hit 10. I don't think we hit double digits, but I think, I think everybody needs to be realistic that I think the reality that we get under six is probably, I mean, think about it. We're basically in July, right? So, and we know we've already been prepped for a rate increase from the feds in July. I don't see much changing because then that leaves you what, August, September, October, November, four months. Yeah. We're running out of time. That, yeah, that's my point. If we were having this conversation in March, then maybe there's a little bit of possibility to it. I just think it's so late in the year to say that as we roll into 2024, that that's going to be possible. For an agent right now that, you know, we've got six months ahead of us and we're going to continue the spring's over basically. Okay. So we're into summer now. And so you're not going to, you know, you can't count on a market like you just saw the last three or four months in terms of demand. You can count for less demand over the next six months. Stop me if you disagree, but I would say any agent right now has got to account for less demand and start to really dig through their database and be proficient on the way they're engaging with everybody to make sure that they can capture what's going to be available for them in their market, because there's not just going to be that spring buyer out there. There's going to be the the buyer or the seller that need to make a move for a specific reason. And you need to uncover who they are in your database and get connected with them quickly. Uh, Cause I think demand's going down over the next six months. So I've got an internal stat on this that we just charted. So we, we worked with our inside sales team. Obviously we're trying to set appointments, meet with people. The number of conversations over the last 30 days compared to the month of April increased by four. So four more conversations for them to set an appointment. They were going from 14 to 18. Um, and that, that was the average. So that, that's an indicator right there. I mean, you're looking at, all right, I got to have four more conversations. Most agents don't even have four conversations in a day. The knowledge brokers do, but some of these, you know what the numbers are. And so if that's happening now, and you know, I, I, I do see there, there's an opportunity to do business in the second half of the year for the people that are ready to dig in, Byron, like you said, have those conversations, work their database, get to that eight, nine, 10 plus attempts on contact, all the things that work. You can still sell homes the second half of this year, but you're not going to be falling into those spring buyers, like you said. And yeah, that number you just said, 14 to 18, I, I hope that 
hit everybody. 14 to 18 now conversations is what you're tracking internally. We know it's double digit conversations on the macro across. I had an agent said to me, he's looking at a, a for sale by owner that just listed with an agent on the active market. It was like a million dollar listing. He's like, I can't believe it. I called these people like four times. I'm like, you were 40% of the way there. Why'd you stop? <laughs> if you called them 10 times, you would have you would have had an opportunity to maybe convert on a listing appointment. He's like, well, they never they never picked up once. They never called me back. They're busy. They're a for sale by owner for a reason. I mean, not everything's working upstairs. You got to call them multiple times. And remember, the typical is eight to twelve, right? We know that yeah. in a normal market for any kind of sale, whether it's in real estate or out of real estate, the normal is eight to twelve touches. And we know the average salesperson gives up at about two to four, actually, you know, 2.7 is the NAR stat. That's the average amount of time an agent follows up. Right. It, so great book. Go for no. Oh, we have our oh, book. draft. Oh. We, have our, we have our book draft coming up before we end the show. So if you were listening last week, you know, we're going to do a book draft myself, Lisa, Tom, top six books for real estate agents. We're going to go one by one. Uh, have a two round draft. So stay with us for that because that, that's coming up here. What else do we want to have? I've got an interesting way draft. to set the draft up. I'm gonna I'm gonna take the lead on that. I've got it all prepped here for you guys. Surprise sure uh, draft order. All right. What else do we want to hit before we get into the draft? So Byron, you talked about um I mean we talked about inventory at length. I don't think we need to go further anymore. Um builder confidence all of a sudden is positive, right? So builder confidence in the market for newly built single family homes in June rose five points to 55, according to the National Association of Home Builders. That was released on the 19th, just a couple of days ago. And that's the sixth straight month that builder confidence has increased. And it's the first time that sentiment levels have surpassed the midpoint of 50 since a year ago, July of 2022. I'm clear these two topics are, are related here. Builders are now maybe cautiously optimistic about market conditions, given the low levels of existing inventory and hopefully some improvement in supply chain. What are you seeing with new construction? I mean, is that is that an opportunity for folks? I mean, we I know at, at our team, we've put more new construction under contract the past six months than I've, I've seen historically. And I'm clear it's one because that's what's available. Two, yeah, they're in these out, they're in their like further out markets. Right. So if you go from where we are in Philadelphia, you, you kind of go west and north. You go south, you're in the Delaware and Maryland, but it's, it's going west towards like Lancaster, the middle of the state. That's where we've seen a lot of these developments spring up. And I'm seeing buyers are, they're chasing the house in some cases. They're not chasing the neighborhood, which a lot of us might be used to. They just want, I want, I want a new home. I need a bigger place. I want enough space for my family. And that, that's been the trend we've seen. What are you two saying? So in this low inventory environment that we're in, one out of four homes are new construction. So builders make up 25%. They're controlling 25% of the active inventory today. Um, and they're not overbuilt like they were in, you know, 2005, six and seven. So they're, they're at a, you know, there's still, you know, a huge gap in uh, the amount of inventory we need. So, so they're in a power position. They also have the flexibility in a lot of these markets, um, you know, that they have big communities, think about the Southeast, think about Texas, where in these national home builders, which by the way, Pulte and some of these other national home builders just, just this week hit all time high on their stock. 
um, but they have the ability to go in there and put a, a below mortgage rate for the buyer. Okay. Mm -hmm. So they, so they can buy down the rate if they lend with them. And so for a buyer, it's like, wow, I'm getting inventory that doesn't exist in the existing home sales sector. I'm getting a lower mortgage rate and I'm getting a couple of, you know, add-ons in, in some locations from that builder. It becomes a no brainer. Now they're going to have to figure out how to sell some of this inventory in the higher price points because the average price uh, right now, sales price for new construction is 550,000. And they are sitting over seven months of inventory when you just look at new construction, which is technically a buyer's market. It's very different from the existing home sale market. It's because of that price point uh, is higher than the starter home price point. Uh, so they've got that to deal with. But overall, their confidence is up because they're in a they're in a power position because of how weak the inventory is on the existing home side. So we know in Pennsylvania, Byron, the average price for new construction, Tom, you said it's one 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 two, right? Well, it depends on the county. So it was uh, it's eight fifty seven nine twenty two and one point two four million in uh, Chester, uh, Delaware, and Montgomery counties, respectively. So th there's a range there for sure. But our median sale price is four twenty six. So it doesn't even matter. Because it's it's so much higher. I mean, the, the buyer that they're making the average income, which is a little less than a hundred thousand dollars a year, they're getting squeezed out. Yeah. How about you, Byron? What's the what's the do you know the average price for new construction in Connecticut right now? I don't. All I know is that number. We're only adding two thousand. It's going to be significantly higher than the um, the average median price. Just off. I don't have the number, but just off of what I'm seeing. Yeah, it's bananas. I actually just pulled it for uh, Massachusetts. I didn't dig into New Hampshire. Massachusetts, the average price for new construction single family is above $1.5 Right? The average price for a new construction condo is above a million. If you are not getting educated about current housing conditions and the economic factors surrounding them, you're doing yourself and your clients a disservice. This is the Knowledge Brokers Podcast. I'm here with Byron Lazine and Lisa Chinati. I'm Tom Tool, And the first thing we got to talk about this week is what we've been kind of waiting for was it transpired the way we all thought it would, that the Federal Reserve had their... What the heck? Like, the, it's not, not affordable. Uh, like, at all. Like... Even with our higher, you know, typical wage, I think compared to both of your markets, right? Because we have Boston, which yep. the metro, which brings a higher mm -hmm. average income. When you still look at the average price for new construction single family tops $1.5 million. That's mind blowing to me. I actually hadn't ever pulled that data till just now. Yeah, it's, it's very costly to build. And, uh, you know, this is why I keep talking about Stop stimulating the bottom. Stop giving the first-time homebuyer competing with 15 offers, you know, $5,000 off their closing costs and think that that's going to, you know, help put more people into home ownership. There's 65.7% home ownership rate right now. It's the same as it was last year, okay? This doesn't go up until you can get more inventory at 350000 and below across the country to, you know, to, to hit the market. It just doesn't happen. It's impossible. Yeah, it's the cause I'm passionate about. You all know that affordable housing and, you know, looking at zoning laws and how do we accomplish it? I, 
the topic about the conservation land is a it's a hot button, right? Because I do believe that we need some protected space and conservation land, and we need to balance that land and space with for what? What do we need it for? Oh, I hit a button. I actually like when I hit oh, button buttons. Like, <laughs> like, we need it for what? So like people that want to save the salamanders can can like be all excited and and you, well, you know, piss them off. I mean, yes. I mean, that's the reality, right? Is that that open space does protect some of our wildlife, which is an important part of our ecosystem. And I'm a little bit crunchy here. This is going to be my my New England coming out. Yeah, um, but go. also, you know, a granola bar. I'm going Isn't to I'm Connecticut go in New England, by the way. All right. Yeah. I'm, 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 I just want to make well, sure. but he lives in Florida, so like <laughs> he's not really like New England. But the other part of it, right? I I do spend half my time living in downtown Boston, and what I'll tell you is that like the amount of people that gravitate to the parks, or even being able to do things like have a garden, like I, I think at some level you two kind of take it for granted that you could, if you wanted, not that either one of you is going to, but you could plant a garden and give your kids that experience, right? Just by virtue of opening your back door, those that are in highly urban areas don't necessarily have that option. And the open space, I do feel, is important at some level. Okay, open. there's a difference between having a nice park in a city and having some greenery in the city and then taking thousands of acres yes. and just saying, we're never gonna be able to develop. It happens over here, you know, part of Connecticut I'm in right now all the time. So there's like these big chunks of land. People are making way more, more than market value. I don't know where this money's coming from, by the way. Where does this money come from where they can go and sell a piece of land that they're getting well above market value uh, to sell to, you know, to these groups and never develop it? Where does the money come from? You pay taxes, right, Byron? Because I'm pretty sure that's what I mean, let's call it what it is. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, you have M. Night Shyamalan, who's, you know, he's the sixth sense and all these movies. He's he's flipping the land of the local conservation trust. I mean, you know, it's this is what happens. Right. And I think to Lisa's point, I think there, there is some value in having some open space. The flip side is, though, you know, it's how much open space do you need? Because if you want to grow these communities and stimulate the economy and have more jobs come there, I mean, it. You can't have it both ways. There's obviously I, a middle ground here. It. And, yep. it, you know, it's what, what I find is that, where, where, you know, where I live versus where my office is versus the city of Philadelphia are three very different places. And they're all within 45 minutes of each other. And some counties and some local governments have a much different stance on this than others. And, uh, it, you know, it's when, when you have this, it's literally community by community choices that are made. And the old boys and old girls network that are making these decisions. I mean, you see these people running these conservation trusts. Half the time, it looks like they, but you know, they're, they're they're next to the crypt keeper on Tales from the Crypt, and they're and they're just sitting around waiting for this stuff to happen. So, if you want to really solve this affordability issue, there's got to be a change in the government laws and and the, and the zoning restrictions because I mean, the, that that's the fundamental problem in a lot of these places. My father did four thousand new construction units, right? And he dealt with this crap all the time. And this was back in the 80s and 90s when they were open to developing. Now we're in this other spot. I mean, we have literally no new construction that, that comes to the market. And it's like old golf courses that get developed instead of these, these trusts and these other things. It's, and it's some of these like way off the beaten path communities that, that are going to have to make some dramatic decisions of being a little bit different. Like if you look at 
Western Massachusetts, for anybody that's been to Massachusetts, Western Massachusetts and the area Lisa operates in, and she's talking about, you know, Boston and surrounding areas of Boston are very different places. Yep. That's factual. That's factual. No different where I live. And it's, 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 I, at least it's been to my office. You guys have been to my house. You've been to Philly. It's like three different places, all in 45 minutes. And here, and here's the numbers. This was in Bloomberg this morning. Okay. I talked about it on the hot sheet. Office availability rate in selected U.S. downtowns. San Francisco's almost 33%. Houston's almost 33%. Atlanta's over 31%. Los Angeles is 30%. Chicago's over 26%. Boston, by the way, is over 17% and rising. Mm -hmm. These office buildings in these cities are, are due to have $1.4 trillion in the next year and a half by the end of 24 on their loans, on refinancing. You're seeing people in San Francisco, because they're they're the leader of the pack here, walk away from their office buildings. This is Tom, Philadelphia is on the list of 22%. This I'm is sure it is. This is going to continue to happen. This, my my friends, is the closest thing to any real estate great financial crisis that you could see. You had Blackstone recently walk away from paying their mortgage they've got more money than anybody because they said you know what we can put our money to use in better places than these office buildings and so this is the only place that you can to lisa's point you can only build up least there's not enough green space in boston these cities some of them are gonna have they're gonna need to change you've got suburbs area around the cities that don't want to change and then you've got places like western mass where nothing happens. People are working from everywhere now. So the communities that lead and say, hey, we're going to change, take away the regulation, let some affordable housing happen here, might be the communities of the future. And they might be, you know, not where you expect them to be. Well, you bring up a really great point there. I've got a couple sources at a few high up large financial institutions that they can't get their people back to work, right? And these people are making New York City or Boston or Philadelphia salaries, and they've moved to these remote locations because they want to be out in open space. And it's that that's one challenge. And then the second challenge is when they do want to come into the office, like it, it's, a, it's a whole different issue. They don't like they wouldn't let them come back in. They have all these policies. And then you've got a lot of cities have an additional city wage tax when you work in the city. I don't know if Boston's like this. In Philadelphia, it's, it's uh, just under 4%. So New You're York making City. any kind of money, right? Yeah, New York City's whatever. Uh, I mean, they, they don't have them, right? You're making any kind of money. You don't want to live there because you can pay half by just moving outside and get more space. Like it, 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 this, and then they have really low property taxes. The, there's all these screwed up laws that are causing a lot of this to happen, and that's but, where fundamentally it starts. Go ahead, Byron. Those vacancy rates that I just read off; those are the vacancies on the leases. Those are going up over the next two years, five years, whatever. <clears throat> Castle Systems, who's a property management company, uh, their data shows that the 10 largest metro areas nationwide averaged a shade under 50%. So 49.7% of workers are actually back physically in the offices on any given day. So you have vacancies now, you, you know, in like, let's just take San Francisco. Over 30% of the offices are vacant, no lease on them. So then let's call it the 65 to 70% of offices that are actually leased out, only 50%, 49.7% on average are even showing up in those offices. So as those leases keep coming due, it's like, geez, one out of two of my employees are showing up here or less. 
I'm just going to let this thing roll. I'm not going to renew this lease. Why am I going to renew this lease? And you're going to keep seeing um, this. This is going to be a long-term problem. It's not just because, you know, Elon believes people should work from the office. It, it doesn't mean every company's adopting it because they're not. They're clearly not. Most of them are going to a hybrid approach or complete work from home approach. You, you know, for everybody that thought this was going to snap back after the pandemic, it just hasn't. And New York City, by the way, 20% of their revenue is property taxes from the office buildings. That's not even um, the other tax that you're talking about, Tom, the if you live in the city, work in the city tax mm -hmm. on top of the state income tax. So you got a big tax issue. Uh, San Francisco has 70, $780 million deficit coming the next two years because of this Ooh. commercial crisis. It, it's, it's wild. I mean, and even, you know, as a, as a, as a real estate agent, we've got to pay taxes on the homes that we sell on the commissions in the city of Philadelphia. Like that's how granular this gets. So it's, um, it, it's something that they almost, these laws kind of tend to push people out. And I mean, you think about it, like you start making some money, you get married and you have a choice to make. Am I going to upgrade and continue to live in the city? Or am I going to go to the suburbs? And when you can get a 4% raise by moving and get more space and you think about it, you're having, it becomes an easier decision. So you're stimulating the, not the top Byron, to your point. It's, it's all about, it's all about how do we get these people that actually control the assets to let things go. And I think that's where, that, that's where government misses the mark in a lot of cases. Lisa, anything to add to that? Or are you just, you preparing for your draft? draft books. i i'm 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 on books all right all right lisa's on books let's go to books yeah this all right so the book know. draft this, let me this let me will hopefully it. help the mindset of after all the great news well look you read some books you get better right i think mark cuban said that he spends he, he reads books constantly every day because you get one idea from it that you wouldn't have gotten from listening to a podcast or something else it can change the way you do things so I'm a, I'm a big fan of the audiobook. I don't know about you guys. I read it about a third grade level. So it, uh, it helps to digest the content a little faster. So mm -hmm. what I did here, um, I went to a list randomizer and I would suggest a snake draft format. So whoever gets pick one, two, three, and then three and four go back to back and we'll go top oh. six. And then what I would also love, this is a bonus. We talked about um, books for real estate agents. I would also have to throw in a leadership book if you have that for a surprise third pick um, and, and if, if you guys are up for that. But let's start with the first two rounds. I'm going to hit the randomizer here. If you can see it. But so the first six books here, just to be clear. So this is we're going to go top six books for real estate agents. And then yes. we're going to do a bonus three for leadership. Yes. OK, I'm, I'm clear on that. I just want to make sure everybody's clear. All right. So, all right, so you're picking the draft order. I'm going to a list randomizer right now, and we're going to put in LBT. Could do BLT actually if you guys are hungry for lunch. And uh, let's randomize I this. I really am hungry for lunch. Okay, well it's 10:45. I mean, when you get up early, that happens. All right, first pick goes it. to Lisa. Second pick to Byron, and third pick to myself. So, what do you guys got? Let's go. Snake order. All right. So, real estate agent book. One of my first. Oh gosh. All right. I'm going to give you versatile selling, which I know I brought up last week, but I think that knowing personality types 
the keywords and how it impacts sales is one of the biggest skill sets that a real estate agent should have. All right, I'm going to I'm I'm torn and I'm conflicted and I have about four books I want to to fit into two. Uh, but the first book I read when I got into the industry, and it's not the book that I buy all of my agents, surprisingly, which, you know, that should be the pick. Actually, you know what? I'll save this one for my second pick because I don't think I'm going to take it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the one that I buy for every agent when they onboard. It's Miracle Morning for Real Estate Agents. It's a good I, one. I think, I think it's such a hard business um, that if you don't have the mindset right, it, you know, you're, you're going to be in that 87% that fail. I would attach a cousin book to that called tribe of millionaires they're very similar it's kind of like the updated Dude, you can't take two Actually, books. you just took two it's, you, you all right my pick fail. my pick is miracle morning there you go for real estate agents specifically that was on my list great book we give that to everyone that, that joins the team too and, and um uh my, my mentor john collins um he's uh i think uh, you guys might have met him uh, he did a talk for our team yesterday and he basically said like hey you're not getting up early, you're not going to succeed in this business. And he's been doing it for 30 years and sells 70 to 80 homes a year. So I, I find that to be a great one, Byron. Um, so I'm going to go two back to back here. The first one is the book that changed my career. You can't even buy this anymore. Uh, actually, you can. I think it's $600 on Amazon. It is Real Estate by Mike, written by Mike Ferry, which is, <laughs> I pick up this book. It's, it's basically a pamphlet. I don't, I don't know who wrote it. I mean, it might have been like a WordPress site or something. And it says, here's what you want to do to be successful. And I didn't even get through the whole book when I read it. It said, call your sphere. And this is in 2008. And I said, great. Well, my sphere's not buying anything. People are losing their jobs. And he said, and then it was expired listings for sale by owners. And I put the book down and I started doing it. You guys got to know me through expired listings. That's been one of my things that really drove my business. So if you can find the book, good luck. But uh, it's, uh, I think it's $600 on Amazon right now is, is the price for this thing. It's out of print. Um, the second one I have, a little more tactical, and we also give this book to everyone that joins our team, Exactly What to Say for Real Estate Agents by Phil Jones, Jimmy Mackin, and Chris Smith. Um, I'm a big script guy. I find that NLP confuses people if you don't really study it. Phil and Jimmy and Chris broke it down in easy ways to use strategies that are going to take the pressure out of having difficult conversations for people. And I think that skill is more important than ever right now in 2023. So those are my two books for, for real estate agents. Real Estate by Mike and Exactly What to Say for Real Estate Agents. Well, I love you gave a book that nobody can get. I mean, well, you know what? That's how I, I mean, it's, I, I can, I can pick three and, and cheat like you did, Byron, if you want me to. I mean, I've only picked, I only have one on the board, Miracle Morning. That's all I got on the board, apparently. Go ahead, Lisa. No, you're oh, up. Oh, oh, it's no. back to me. Yeah, oh, good, 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 good. Um, I'm so torn. I'm so torn. Um, I'm going to go. I, I, there's a book sitting next to me that it's a new book and I want to pick this book. And um, yeah. I'm going to pick this book because I'll save the other book for my leadership one. This book right here, The Agent's Edge. It's Jordan Cohen's new book. It is. Uh, he's the number one REMAX agent worldwide. For now. For now. Right. T Tom might be uh, at some point. Anyways, I'm kidding, Jordan. I'm kidding. He's got he's got a lot of, you know, big clients, Celestia Stallone and Kobe Bryant was a client, Kobe's, Kobe's family, you know, all these big L.A. people. Anyways, he goes through from how he started, you know, 400,000 homes and then the same principles applying on these million dollar plus homes, these multi million dollar homes on how to win listing appointments. 
it is it is such a he could have wrote this book 10 years ago or 10 years forward and these principles are going to be relatable if you want to actually win listings if you're going to be on the appointment and convert right now there's um there's this thought process that agents have that if they you know send out mail and and basically just lick envelopes and, and send it in the mail that they're going to get 10 listings under their name. Nobody's going to call you off of a postcard and be like, wow, you have now won the listing. And what he talks about in this book is being able to get in front of people and win listing appointments, how to generate them, how to win them, how to take them down. And I don't care how many leads anybody dumps on agents, listing leads, if they're not able to convert at the listing appointment, it doesn't matter. And and Jordan has some really tried and true principles in there. Some things that even made me say, you know, I've been on a lot of listing appointments. Wow, I, you know, that's something I should be coaching differently. That's something I should be thinking about uh, differently. So it's the Agent's Edge. It just came out. It's fantastic. All right, I haven't read that one. I'm going to add it to yeah, my. I'm list. going to get that. Yeah, that, that good, good. Jordan should give you a commission for that. I know he should. I know I should get a Jordan. Give me an affiliate link or something. <laughs> All right, so I get the last uh, book for real estate agents. Mine yes. would be Never Split the Difference. I think Ooh. that uh, yeah. negotiation is so important. I think it is a skill that most of us don't practice enough, and it makes or breaks sales and relationships across the board. That's right. I love that. I Excellent love that book. Pick. Great book. All right, so awesome. we're gonna we're gonna do the leadership one, right? We'll go back, yes. snake back the other way. Lisa, me, and you. Yeah, that works. All right, Lisa, oh, what do you got for the leadership book? Okay, am I getting just one book for leadership? Or oh, we could do a we could do a double uh, round. Whatever you guys yeah. want to do. And then let's wrap um, it up with the worst real estate book. I have a good one for that too. <laughs> So thinking about leadership, I'm going from the, the mentality of the person who's running a team or a brokerage or a business of some sort. I'm going with five dysfunctions of a team. It's a quick Ooh. easy read and is so, uh, it was one of the first ones that was game changing for me in my mentality of how I started this journey. All right. So I'm going to go with the book that I was torn with for the agent. Cause it's one of the first books I read as an agent, but it's, you know, whether you're an agent or a leader, this one fits right into the leadership category as well. So it's, I think it's something we've all read. If you haven't read it, it's a must read. How to Win Friends and Influence Others. Uh, absolutely a must as you're starting your business or sales career to to read that book. And every leader uh, should probably even refresh on that every every couple of years. Great, great books. Actually stole a couple of mine. So pick one that I have here for leadership will be Think and Grow Rich. This is, I, and I think this, this applies for any sort of business, right? Where you're working on yourself, you're trying to get better. I know you guys because of that book. And we have this kind of relationship. Uh, Josh Rubin and I, who's a friend of all of ours, read it. And it was after Summit one year. And he said, hey, let's start a mastermind group. Just like Think and Grow Rich. And that's legitimately changed the trajectory of me as a leader. And, and I think all of us in, in, in a lot of ways. And, and if, I mean, that, that, any business, you can read that book. It's a great book to think about taking ownership in your business by Napoleon Hill. The second one, I read this recently, um, a couple summers ago, Trillion Dollar Coach, uh, which is a, a book about Bill Campbell, who was the coach at Apple, Google, Intuit, and some, some other places where how to, how to deal with people, how to deal with issues. It's, you know, it, it, when, you, when you're a leader, there's a lot of shit that comes up, right? And I mean, it's just, 
how do you deal with it all? And, and a couple of things that always stick in the back of my mind is when I read that book is if there's like an elephant in the room, like my goal was to go shoot the elephant and pin it on the wall so you can kind of move on. So that like stuff like that really helps. So those, those are my two leadership books, Think and Grow Rich and Trillion Dollar Coach. There's a lot of different ways I want to go here. There's, two, there's so many. I got a list of 10 books for each of these. I know. There's actually a lot of different ways I want to go, but I think the one that can be the most impactful for the most people would be Traction uh, by Gino Wickman. I'm such a big believer in EOS. Both BAM and the real estate team are running off of EOS. Game changing. Um, yeah, it's game changing. If you're you know a leader and you're feeling to some degree, like you're floundering or you're unorganized, or you're not getting anything done in meetings, or you don't have a structure on uh, how to set and accomplish goals. This kind of book, uh, this book kind of packages it all together for you. So that would be, I think the most impactful to the most people. That's why I'm going to pick it and put it on the list. All right. My last one is one that I've come back to. I've actually read it twice this year um, as after having read it once in the past is predictable success. Um, and I haven't read kind that. Of, yeah, this is it. I it, got two books to read here. This is great, by the way. Dude, such a good one. It kind of talks through like the cycles of business. Um, and as I've read it, every single time I've read it, I've been like, holy <laughs> shit, that happened to me. Oops, sorry. Uh, can't take the boss another no. girl. Well, I just said that the last, I don't know what you're talking about. It's fine. Okay. Um, but like, it talks about like going through the cycle of like the fun stage where money's coming in and everything seems great. And then the inevitable start of things starting to fall apart and the whitewater phase of business where, um, things get dicey because things have grown so fast and people need to change and kind of help me understand that sometimes those that started with us aren't always going to be with us, but also understanding the psychology of it. And then talked about the treadmill phase, which is where it's easy to get stuck in a rut with business and leadership and the importance of not allowing that to happen. And I actually felt myself slipping there at one point. So sounds like I need that book this year. Yeah, it's a it's one of my favorite, favorite books. Yep. I will send you a copy. This is going to be my gift to you. Well, thank you, Lisa. Chop yeah. liver over here. Thanks. Tom, I'll, I'll give you the I'll give you the hand me down when I'm done. All right, good. That sounds great. Perfect. I'll, uh, we can we can use it. Tom again. can't read. He reads like a third grader. So I'm not going to send him a book. <laughs> beep that one out. Can't, can't read my ass. Right. Beep that beep that one out. Uh, Tom, you had a pick for worst book to stay away from. I guess worst book to stay away from. Commission Impossible by the Broke Agent. That would be my, my kid uses it as a coloring book now. <laughs> It's actually a very, very funny book, but uh, if you want to be successful, don't follow anything in that book would be my advice. Great pick. Great pick. All right. Uh, Lisa, do you have a worse book? I don't know if I have a worse book. Uh, no, because I tend to, once it not interests me, I shut it down, but I, I could go on. I My list of books is actually, you know, it's funny when I first started coaching, I was like, I don't read books. I'm never going to read books. Don't tell me to read books. And You've told I'm me that before. I know. I'm probably one of the most voracious readers you know now. Like, I always have a book. Yeah. What are some of your um, honorable mentions that came really close? I'll, I'll give you one that I was really torn between with uh, traction was was Dare to Lead, Brene Brown. I think that can be impactful to a lot of people. Um, and then Good to Great, Jim Collins was was another one that I was... That's excellent book. Excellent yeah, book. That's, that's a great book. I've listened to that, I think, three times. I had Leaders Eat Last as another one of mine. Also excellent. Um, Surrounded by Idiots is, I know I mentioned that, I think, in a- Last week. That's episode. the new name of the podcast. It's, 
Uh, yeah, it's still, it's so it, every, every time a, a miscommunication or misunderstanding, the root is there. Um, what else did I have on my list? Tom, what was an honorable mention for you? Um, I had, I had two, well, three really, um, the millionaire real estate agent by Gary Keller. And I would also kind of group shift in with that as well right now. And I, I don't think it's anything crazy, but if you're looking to kind of dive in, it's an easy read to get started. Um, a mindset one that really helped me a lot was the subtle art of not giving an F by uh, Mark Manson. I think that really changed my approach on just dealing with clients and people. Cause I mean, in this business, you're going to deal with a lot of BS and it's just being able to have a high tolerance for it allows you to be more successful. I, I talked about this with agents on our team all the time where they get upset when one person doesn't like them. I'm like, Hey, try about a thousand in the industry. Try about all the agents in the marketplace. Don't like you. And, and, and it's, you know, it, it, and it's not that they don't like you, they don't know you and they see you as this person. And I think that that really helped me, especially like going after expired listings, right? I mean, you know, this business is very, people take things personally all the time. So that, that, was, a, that was a really great one. It's a great, I think, point to maybe end off on, you know, what you're consuming. And I've got, you know, Lisa was talking about that, um, that book about falling into a rut with the business. And I've, and I've caught myself a couple times this year with a mindset that you know doesn't support growth because of you know some of the some of the struggles that uh we've all hit in, in 2023 and what you're feeding into your mind is so important you know the agent that is not the knowledge broker who you know wants to just like take it easy you know just stuff mail is you know not go out and make the calls not make the relationships in the community not dig into the database not do the real work that actually results in conversions is unfortunately often the agent that has a lot of friends in their ear chirping them, you know, about why would you do that? Why are you going to listen to this person? You know, take it easy. Or, or they also are consuming a lot of garbage on TikTok and other places that are telling them to, you know, have a bare minimum Monday or, or that the uh, Sunday scaries are a real thing as, as opposed to absorbing, you know, content from people who have actually done what they're trying to achieve love that great point all right good first ever book draft um we'll have to do this again this is, I, I like this kind of stuff yeah. i think this is fun i think there's, there's a lot of value there i mean i i got a couple books i'm gonna order when we get off this call so or this podcast lisa i love the studio the the what are those things called the sand thing the time it's an hourglass an hourglass, hourglass. there you go the hourglass so so did somebody get you that purpose purposely? Like, is there a reason why you need, you, you gotta, do they give you a I'm, certain amount of time to accomplish tasks? I think Spencer thought it looked nice. Um, it does look very nice. So, the whole studio looks great. What yeah, does the sign say? Uh, who the <laughs> I bleep that out again. Lisa's on fire today. Dude, it's so bad. Uh, girls with big dreams become women with vision. Again, I can take zero credit for it. Spencer gets all the, all the props. Tom looking good over at the uh, beach house. Yeah, way to go, Tom. Hey, yeah, Byron, to, uh, great... Bobby slept in this room, so it's uh, part of the BAM studio now. No, I slept. I slept in the living room. Oh. I told everybody. I told everybody if you if you're going to try to sleep in the living room with, with me, my alarm's going off at four thirty, and you're going to have to deal with it. So they all slept in the bedrooms. Yeah. I remember uh, I got a picture from Eric and Dan, and they were in the bunk beds together, giggling like schoolgirls. So it was, it was yeah. very funny. They should be banned from the Jersey Shore for life. All right, guys, have a great weekend.